Leveraging Life. It's a series we've been going through, and today we're talking about making margin, living with margin. I want you to picture something with me. I want you to picture a group of young kids, okay? There's a group of young kids, 10, 11 kids, and somebody comes along and they say they've got a surprise in a bag. Now, what happens with those young kids? Immediately, personal space goes out the window. There's this mob now that, that, that all clumps together and there are these big eyes that are all looking in intently. They want to know what's in the bag. The little ones are shoving and pushing their way to the front. The big ones are on tiptoes in the back. They're looking. They're leaning in expectantly. They want to know what's in the bag. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Candy? What's it going to be? I want to submit to you this morning that that's what it means to live with, with margin in your life. Are you expecting anything in life today? Are you, are you living expectantly for anything? When it's all said and done, all of the hours of wrestling, praying, studying, thinking, talking, it all boils down to this, that living with margin is really expectant gospel intentionality. Expectant gospel intentionality. That we believe that our God is alive and he is on mission. That he's alive and he's working here and now. And that he has called us into that mission. And as we engage in that mission, guess what we also believe? We believe that he's actually going to do something. We're like those kids that believe something's going to come out of the bag. And so they're leaning in, they're pushing, they're on their tiptoes, wide-eyed, looking expectantly. That's the way we are to be living our lives. Not shocked if God shows up, but making margin so that we're completely available, as available as possible for when He does show up. Well, before we, we get to all of that, before we get into more about what we are saying, let me clarify what we're not saying. And, and these two thoughts really came not as I thought about you, but these are things that came out of my own heart, okay? So don't take these as like a, I was thinking about this person when I had that idea or something like that. As I wrestled with margin, these were, these were sicknesses that came up in my own heart, okay? Here's the first thing that we're not saying. We are not saying that we can squeeze God into the margins of our life. We're not saying, right, you think margin, I don't know if you're like me, you think margin, you think a computer screen, you think the words in the middle and the margin on the side, and if you were that underachieving student like me, you love to play with the margins to try and get the paper long enough so that it fit, and they came out with that great button that's called make it fit button. It was awesome. Right? You play with those ones, then you get to, then you get to college and they figured it out and they start counting words and the margins don't matter anymore. We're not saying that you get to have the main part of the page and that God will just be content to get a little bit of your life. Just give him a margin. Just give God five minutes. Give me five minutes, uh, give me five minutes of Jesus 
in my life and then I'll get the rest of the day. Let Give God Sunday, give him 30 minutes in the morning, and then the rest of the life will really be up to you. Share the gospel once in a day, once in a month, once in a year, I don't know, and then you can, you're free to do whatever you want. God will not fit in the margin of our lives. And that's a good thing. That is a great thing. I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking right, and I often don't think right, but when I am thinking right, I'm thinking, when I say that, I mean I'm thinking biblically, I'm thinking clearly, I do not want a God so small that he'll fit in the margins of my life. I don't need a God that small. What I need is what my soon-to-be four-year-old little daughter calls the awesome. She loves to take the adjective awesome and turn it into a noun by adding the article. So she'll do a little, you know, she'll draw something, she'll bring it to me. I said, man, that's so great, Phoebe, that's so, that's so great. Yeah, Dad, it's the awesome. Okay, the awesome. Our God, beloved, is the awesome. He will not be content with the margin of our lives. Our God is the mover of mountains, he's the stopper of waves, he's the namer of stars, he's the giver of life, the granter of grace, and he is the source of all that is good. He is too big for the margins of your life. He won't fit there. The universe cannot contain him. He looked at his nation Israel and through the prophet Isaiah, he said, to whom will you liken me? To whom will you compare me? Look to the heavens who created all these He who calls them out by name. God won't fit in the margins of our life. We are by no means saying, give God just a little more of that space. Carve out an extra five minutes for God this week. No. No, in fact, the testimony of Scripture is the exact opposite. We don't give God our time. We live on His time. You see, in Scripture, if you follow the word time, and we, it's a whole other message, but if you follow the word time, it's always very chronological. It moves like this. Because there is someone that we call the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the owner, possessor, and controller of time. In fact, really, with all of the watches that we have, and we probably have a bajillion of them in this room, between what's on our wrist, what's on our phones, what's on our tablets, we've got time everywhere. That time, every second that ticks away, it tells you God is on mission. God is on mission, God is on mission, God is on mission. He is moving all of history To the fulfillment of his purposes. We do not give God our time. We live on his. He's the controller of it all. So we're not saying, and it's so important, we are not saying that we're going to squeeze a little more of God into the margins of our life. Beloved, I think you know this, but no one, I've never met a single person that at the end of their life said, you know what, I really messed up, I gave God too much of my life. I really should have pushed him a little more to the margin. I really messed up, man. If I had just gotten with a little less of God, things would have gone better. Not a single person. Here, here's what else we're not saying, okay? We are not saying that we can squeeze people into the margin of our lives, okay? Not saying God's in the margin. We're also not saying we can squeeze people in. We're not saying, and again, this is what came out of my own heart. I start thinking about margin. I'm thinking, okay, 
I got to apply this message, not just stand up and preach it. So what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to carve out an extra 10 minutes for people. And then I'll feel really good about telling them to go away while I prepare for a message on margin. That's not what we're saying. In fact, there's this great story in Luke. You got your Bibles. Go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. It's a story you know all too well. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, we read this. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that would be Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, you would think early on that these lawyers, Pharisees, would have learned asking Jesus questions is a very dangerous thing to do. Verse 26, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? Two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said what? That all the law and the prophets hang on those. That's an intense statement. So this guy answered correctly. Now, clearly, he was a lawyer, so he's an overachiever. I was that underachieving student. If I got the right answer, I'm done, man. If it was even partly right, that's it. I'm not saying another word. Just be happy with that. But no, he has to continue. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he desired to justify himself and said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, this lawyer understood what we're saying, basically. We cannot say our God is so big that he won't fit into the margins of our life and then spend the rest of the time shoving people to the margins of our life. Scripture won't let us do that. The two great commandments won't let us do that. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. You can't squeeze people into the margins of your life. You can't say, well, I'll be a really good Christian. I'll carve out 10 minutes. Well, I'll be a better Christian than that Christian. I'll carve out 20 minutes. I'll do 30 minutes. I'll give a whole weekend. You can't do it. Here's the two great commands on which all the law and the prophets hang. The only thing we can do is do exactly what this lawyer did. Try to what? Justify ourselves. And what story does he tell? He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, or at least that's how we've labeled it. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And we know the story, and I don't have time to read through all of the story. But we know there's a guy who gets beaten up, pretty much left for dead. And there he lays, and two guys walk by. And Jesus doesn't tell us, but in the context it's clear, some way or another, what did they do? They justified leaving that man where he was. And they kept going. Now it's easy to look at them and to find all kinds of faults with them. But I'd like to modernize the story and let's just inject a few more individuals into this story, okay? Let's first of all, let's inject a guy who's flying down the road a little faster than the speed limit. He's kind of having maybe a little crisis of conscience because you see he's jamming out to his Chris Tomlin playlist because he got up a little late. He kept hitting the snooze button. He was trying to catch up on the last couple episodes that he had recorded on his TiVo the night before, the favorite TV show. And so he went to bed late, didn't get up and have his devotions, but that's okay. He's rocking out this morning, windows up, air conditioned blazing. He's flying down the road, passes that guy, never sees him. 
never sees them. I, I want to interject another one here. This this individual is what we've replaced. You remember back in the day, you used to put bobblehead dolls in in window. We don't need that anymore. We have smartphones, and then people try and use them in their car, and it's basically the same thing. Ah ah ah! Right. So along comes another guy, and he's going a little slower because he's trying to keep up with whatever's going on on his phone. I don't know what people are doing. That's so he's on his phone, he's looking down there like this. Well, he happens how he he notices the guy over there, but he's really busy. I mean, he's already trying to drive and look at his phone, and he stopped by Starbucks, so he's got that. And when that had to get cold, plus that pretty much wiped out whatever he had in his pocket. So he sees the guy and he turns his little smartphone over, snaps a shot. When he gets to work, settles in, posts the picture to Facebook, attaches an article about the rising crime rates in his city. Hashtag someone should do something. And then he feels better about himself. Another person passes by. This is a minivan full of kids. And of course, the mom is just trying to maintain sanity. And it would be that boy who screams out, there's a bloody guy on the side of the road. The mom and me, no, look away, look away, look away, Johnny, look away. We don't have time. I can't stop right now. We've got soccer, then we've got flute, then we've got dance, then we've got to go swimming, and then we got... It's so easy to think about the men that Jesus puts in the story in that cultural context and just berate them at how they justify themselves. But we, I, am there. What does Jesus do with the parable? Jesus flips the whole thing around. What was the guy's question? The guy's question was, who is my neighbor? When you get all the way down to the end of the parable, look at what Jesus does to this guy. He should have stopped with the first question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The question's totally flipped around. The guy was asking the wrong question. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to care about? Who do I have to make margin for? Who do I have to let into my life? I've never asked that question before. Jesus says, who was a neighbor? That's a five-year-old question. I mean, that one's obvious. That's like bottom level. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We are not saying by making margin that we can push people to the margins of our lives because the message of Scripture is that we need to focus on being a good neighbor. We need to go and do likewise. Don't ask, who do I have to let in my life? Ask yourself, am I being a good neighbor? Am I a good neighbor? That's the focus. That's the question. Okay, so we've covered all this, what we're not saying. So what in the world are we saying? Here's what we're saying. We are saying that our great God is alive and active in this world. 
that he is as alive and as active as the stories that we hear from the Old Testament of parting oceans and blocking rivers and conquering armies and driving out nations. We're saying that he is on mission. That's what we've been saying, have we not? God is on mission. He is about calling out sinners, making them into disciples as trophies of his grace. And he has blessed you and I with the privilege of engaging with him in his mission. We call that the mandate. What we're saying is that we want to create, make room extra in our life because we are living expectantly. We're living expectantly. We expect our God to do something. So we're not just praying. We're not just talking about it. We're not just sitting here on Sundays and saying stuff. We're saying, God, I believe that you're alive and that you're at work in this world. I believe you want to save my neighbors and my co-workers and the kids in the neighborhood. And so I'm leaning in with hope. That you're going to do something. So I'm going to create space in my life. Extra. So that when you move God. I'm ready. I'm leaning in. I'm ready. What are you going to do? I'm ready. I'm here. Use me. Do you see that? Do you see that? That, that, that attitude. That mindset. That's totally different. You see, living with margin doesn't have to necessarily do with pace of life. There are people doing nothing who have no margin in their life. They call them teenagers. No, I'm just joking. joking. I'm joking. I'm spending all next week with them. I better be careful. That's not it. It's not about pace of life. It's about carving out. It's about that extra. Okay, let me, let me give you an example of this. This is kind of silly, but it helps me, okay? You drive down 75, all right? Assuming you're not going so fast, everything's just a blur. You're driving down, and when you drive down 75 on both sides of the highway, what is there? There's, a, there's like an emergency lane. Some people don't know it's only for emergencies, but that's what it's supposed to be for, right? There's an emergency lane. Now, when they made the highway... They made it with emergency lanes. Why? Because of what they knew was going to happen. Hopefully they weren't wishing it on anyone, but what's going to happen? A car is going to break down. People are going to get flat tires. There are going to be accidents. And if you make 75 just wide enough for the lanes and then there's an accident, what happens? You got no margin. You got nowhere to put the cars. Everything's backed up. Nothing's moving. Sadly, beloved, with great affection for you, I say to us, this is the way we live our lives. We might even be pleading with God to do something. We might even be pleading with the Spirit of God to guide us and lead us day by day. And then God shows up and we go, ah, ah, ah. Uh, could you come back on Saturday? Cause I, uh, 
let me get my day planner out. Do you, do you have your smartphone with you, God? Cause I, can we schedule something? Cause we have no margin in our lives. We're not expecting that God's going to do anything. That's what we mean when we talk about living, living with margin. Expectant gospel intentionality. I'm not just living intentionally for the gospel. I'm not just praying, as Justin's talked about, for the people that I'm coming in contact with. I'm not just trying to look and see them, listen to them, ask them questions, engage them. I'm not just seeking to manage the mundane, but I'm honestly, with all that I am, I'm hoping, expecting that God's going to act. And when He does, I want to be ready. And willing and available to be used by Him. Now, that does not mean what I'm not saying is that you need to give up sin in your life. You need to give that up anyway. Okay? What I am saying and what Scripture often calls us to is to give up what is good for what's better. Did you catch that? You with me in that? Give up what's good and we can even go this far for what's best. Give up what's good for what's best. We might even be able to use the word sacrifice here. Okay? I am not talking about... Look, if you're sinfully addicted to video games, to shopping, to whatever it may be, you need to deal with that. This is not that. This is giving up good things. Let me give you an example. You still in the Gospel of Luke? Turn back to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Again, you know this story. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Jesus is trying to teach people. There are so many of them, they're pressing in on him. He sees these guys that are cleaning their nets. And so he looks at one of them, whose name was Simon, and he says, Hey, you know, put your boat out a little bit. Let me sit in and I'll teach these people. Something else Jesus and I don't have in common. He sits to teach. I can't stand still. But he sits down, he teaches the people. Then he looks at these guys... Peter, James, John says to them, what? Let's go fishing. And Peter's like, yeah, well, see, we did that all night and um, we didn't get anything. But because you say so, I'll do it. So what happens? They go fishing and there's so many fish, the nets are breaking. Can I tell you, I love Peter. I love him. Where's Peter? The nets are breaking. Other guys, they're signaling to other boats to come in. Natural reaction, normal person, let me help them. Nope, not Peter. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw this, where is he? At the feet of Jesus. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left what? What? Everything and followed him. Matthew puts it this way, which is so so poignant in, in, in Matthew chapter four, verse 22, it says immediately they left the boat and their father 
and followed him. Now, in that culture, it wouldn't just be mom, dad, and kids that were dependent on that income. There was a whole network, a whole extended family that was dependent upon the income that came from that fishing business. They did not leave sinful things. They left good things and they followed Jesus. Again, in Luke, we have another instance, three instances of disciples, two volunteering for discipleship, one being called in Luke chapter nine, starting with verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, the hymn is Jesus and I will follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. Said that before, something like that. Jesus, I'm here. Use me. We certainly sang it. We already sang it this morning. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Go wherever you want me to go. Do whatever you want me to do. You're the greatest. You're the best. Then what does Jesus say? Verse 58, Luke 9. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, there it is right there. Homes are of the devil. Pillows were made by Satan. We need to burn them all. No. It's not what he's saying. He's saying... The Son of Man, which is Him, has chosen to abandon good things for the best thing, which was to do the will of the Father. And He's challenging this man to do the same. We hear nothing from that man. Verse 58. To another He said, follow me. But He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my Father. Very normal, cultural thing to do. Very appropriate. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, you can make a good argument that he could lose clout, lose his reputation in the community if he abandoned his family. But what does Jesus say? What's his response to him? And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those At my home and Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, starting in verse 37, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what we're talking about. Giving up good stuff for the best. That's what we're talking about. So what does that look like practically? I know we're we're running out of time. And What does that look like practically? What does that look like in my life then? Well, let me start by saying this. Don't start with time. When you heard the word margin, and and I know this because some of you talked to me last week when you heard I was giving this message. You were like, yeah, wind up the guy living in Africa to, to come and badger us about use of time. Don't start with time, okay? Don't start with time. Don't go immediately to your day planner and begin looking at time and dates. Start with the assumptions that you have that drive your use of time. Okay, start there. And some of these are deeply embedded. We joke about the proverb, American proverb, time is money, but we believe it and we live it. Okay, what drives your use of time? Justin gave us a great example last Sunday. 
when we went and stayed with that couple in Memphis, she shared with us that the Lord had stirred in her and she wanted to have people into her home. This, I think she was identifying, was her spiritual gift of hospitality and she wanted to use it to build up the body, to also use it to, to, to reach people. But she had this, this thing. It's this, this, this southern thing, right? You, you're a good southern lady. You gotta have a really clean home and you gotta cook a home cooked meal and you'd have an appetizer and a main course and some fancy dessert that you got off of Pinterest and it's all gotta flow and the kids gotta sit still and be seen and not heard and you gotta get everything right and it's like a whole event just to have one family over. Do you know where she found margin in her life? It was not that she changed the events of her life. It's that she changed an assumption that she had. It's that everything had to be perfect. That you can't invite people over to a partially clean house. That you have to cook them a made-from-scratch organic with none of that, whatever those things are everybody's freaked out about. Things in there and it's got to all be perfect and and, and the kids have to sit still and they got to wear the clothes they never actually wear. They're like way down in the bottom drawer in a ball. They got to come out and they got to, you got to get everything perfect so you can invite someone over. Nope. Just say, hey, come over. We'll get, we'll get a pizza. And we'll just sit and we'll talk. You know what? You should realize, I've got time. I've got the time. What are the assumptions that are driving that? You, you say, I want to get together with some coworker, but then you're afraid because you know they've got big things going on in their life and you don't have all the answers. Don't wait till you've got all the answers. Maybe you're afraid you don't want to get together with others because you've got junk going on in your life. Well, if I ask them, let me see. They're going to ask me. Don't wait till you have it all together. Don't start with time, okay? Don't start there. Second thing. I don't even remember what order I put these in. Well, we'll see. Don't buy or fall prey to the lie of balance. Okay? Manage tension. Don't seek perfect balance. There is this idea out there That if I just change a few things, if I just get the right day planner, if I just download the right app onto my phone, I will strike this perfect balance in life. Do you remember the guy? I mean, the kids probably don't remember this, but I remember these guys that would try and balance plates. They'd spin them on like these sticks. Do you remember those guys? And it was like there's one plate all the way over here and he spins that one, then he spins this one, then he spins this one. But then that one's got, oh, I got to go back over here and spin this one. And then I got to go And he does that, and then we're kind of like that on an everyday basis. But then we think, at some point, we'll spin all the plates just right, and we'll just sit back, and we'll, um... And we'll just have this perfect balance in life, and everything will be in sync. Folks, this world is touched with the curse of sin. There is no perfect balance for today. There is not one thing you're going to change in your life and it's going to fix the problem. Your life is not an automobile or an air conditioner that you just simply fix one part and it all falls into place. What happens when we get everything into our nice little boxes? We don't need to trust God. I don't need to depend on the Holy Spirit. I'm in perfect balance without Him. But when I live in tension, 
with all the hats that God has called me to wear. I'm a father and I'm an employee and, I, and I'm also a husband and also I'm committed to, to the community of faith at Baraka and I'm wearing that hat and I'm wearing that hat and one week one's pulling me this way and another week another's pulling me that way and in the midst of all of that tension I'm on my knees before God and I'm saying lead me and guide me. Don't fall prey to there's going to be perfect balance. When do you need people to come into your life? When are you most open for people to come into your life? When? When did that guy beaten up on the side of the road need someone to enter into his life? When it was all clean and nice? When it was a disaster? Expect that the people God drops into your life are going to be messy disasters. And if you could get everything in perfect balance, guess what's going to happen the moment somebody enters in? Don't seek it. Be, be weary of that. Don't, don't seek that, but be okay with the imbalance, with the tension. Tension, managing tension can be a beautiful thing. You know what I, I find myself saying? Some of you guys, your kids are gone. You don't say this anymore. But I get into this kid cycle. Well, when the kids get out of school... We'll have more time. You ever said that? When the kids get out of school, we'll have more time. We'll have people over. It'll be great. Summer vacation. You know, we'll really, that's when we'll really leverage life and we'll do all this stuff. Then, then the kids get out of school and what do I find myself saying? Whoo, you know, it's crazy in here. I mean, I don't know. I want to invite anybody over to this madness. And, uh, you know, when the kids get back into school, then there'll be some schedule and some routine. So when school starts back up, then I'll really begin to leverage my life. The one day syndrome, or the southern way of saying that is fixin' to, round to it syndrome. I get around to it, whatever we're going around, I'm not sure, but we'll get around to it, right? Can I also add this in there, and I say this with a love for you and a concern as come back this time and am seeing, I feel like I'm seeing this, so just please own this with Tenderness and affection for you. But in the Christian community, we are either dangerously close or we have fallen into the idolatry of the family. We worship our families. We will do and believe it is good and right almost to take any measure to keep our families safe and secure. Don't worship your family. I'll give you just one example of this. For some reason, and I've seen this and I've heard this and I'm not thinking of any one person, but I'm telling you I've seen this. We feel it's good and right and okay to cart our kids to soccer practice, flute practice, dance practice, swim over at somebody else's house, go do this other thing. We'll teach them how to hunt, how to fish. We'll do all of these things. But if you say, take your kid to a ministry event, whoa, whoa, I got to guard the family. Family time here. It's family time. We can fish on family time. We can hunt on family time. We can play games. We can watch movies where we don't even look at each other. And that's family time. But don't you dare say we're going to church for family time. Whoa. No. Guard the family. Just by show of hands, how many parents in here want children that grow up and exhaust their lives for the glory of God? By show of hands. 
exhaust their lives for the glory of God, then engage them in the mission of God. Don't guard them from it. Don't teach them that what's important in life is soccer and basketball and clubs. What's important in life is that God's on mission. And at 5 and 4 and 7 and 10 and 13, the God of the universe wants to use them to accomplish His mission, engage them in that mission. Have people over and have your kids there. Tell them they can't go to soccer practice. They can't do another event because you're going to minister together as a family. And they're going to see mom and dad sold out for the gospel. Engaging their neighbors. They're going to see people, messy, broken, screwed up people sitting at their dinner table. And they're going to see mom and dad cry as they pray for them. And they're going to see people come to faith in Christ. And it's going to radically change them. It's going to screw them all up for the glory of God. Amen? Don't worship the family. Don't worship it. Don't guard, don't hold it in here. Why can't family time be to go out into the community and talk with neighbors? Why can't you engage your neighbors in family time? Co-workers in community, do that. Alright. Some of us are not as busy as we think we are. We're not. We say we're busy. We like to say that. We like to make busy noises. I'm a noisy person. That's a shock to all of you. I've been very quiet. But we like to make busy noise. Whoo! <sighs> Woo! I mean, we can make those noises after checking Facebook. Whoo! That was one long Facebook session. I am so busy. Folks, if we just looked at all the things that buzz, beep, vibrate, and all that stuff in our lives and how much time we're spending with them, I think we'd find we have a lot more space already than we realize. Okay? There's a reason that Clash of Clans has commercials on television. That Bejeweled has commercials on primetime television. It's not because everyone out there is playing it all the time. There's a reason we all know what Facebook is. There's a reason that we know these things. I think if we could just look at how much time we're spending on those things, we might already find some margin in our life. Lastly, making margin is more than time. I know we've said don't start with time, but let's now look beyond time. Making margin is not just about time. You know what I found? When, when we got to Africa, I there was this kind of like druggy withdrawal from television and all that interaction and that kind of thing. But then there was this freedom that came. We are so overloaded with information and what's deemed reality television and all of these things that we don't have mental and emotional margin in our lives. I'll spend my whole day worked up about some one-eyed, one-legged, no-tailed dog in China that got beat up by a gang, and it's on Facebook, and then I watch the YouTube video, and this is outrageous. Dog's rights! And then someone right in front of me is hurting. I don't have anything left. Because I got all worked up about a dog in China. 
I can't do anything about the dog in China. God didn't put that in my life, but He put this coworker right in front of me, and I'm like, woo! I, I just, I can't today. Bob, I can't today. There's this dog in China. Don't start with me. And it's, it's done. We overload ourselves with information. We are, we are information junkies. We assume that all information is good information. So we're so, jam- we've jammed our heads so full of all kinds of other stuff that we can't even remember people's names. We don't remember their kids' names. We don't remember if we've seen them before. Make margin. Can I challenge you to this? And, and this, 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 again, is a huge challenge to me. What do we see in the life of Christ? We see a heart that was full of margin. Matthew 9, 36, Matthew 14, 14, Matthew 15, 32, Matthew 20, 34, every one of those passages, what do we see? Jesus came in contact with people and what happened to his heart. It says he was moved with compassion. You know what I want to say to Jesus sometimes? Would you stop it? Would you just, just stop? Set some limit so I can justify myself. But every time there's this messed up needy person, you're going to get away with your disciples and then somehow word gets out where you're going and then there's a whole crowd there and you know their hearts. You know what's going to happen. The next morning, most of them are going to leave when you say, eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want a part of me. But yet in your bowels, you're stirred for them and you spend the entire day healing and teaching them. Is there any margin in this heart of mine? Is there any margin here? Do you weep for people? Do you weep for your neighbors? Are you moved in your bowels when you see them? When I was at Columbia Bible College, so full of pride, arrogant, got into a group. We were praying for brokenness and revival on the campus each night of the week. I was so arrogant. I was so proud. If I was God, I would have just zapped me right in that moment. Praying for all these silly, pathetic Christians that can't pray for themselves. We started praying for the world. Next thing I knew, God crushed me. He broke me. He opened my eyes to the fact that there is a world dying without Christ. Ask God to open up your heart. That there'd be margin in there. Begin praying today, now. Start now. God, make me love people. Open up my heart so that there's margin there. Beloved, this is how we want to live. With expectant gospel intentionality. You see those kids? Can you picture them? There they are. They're all leaning in. They're looking at the bag. What's going to come out? What's going to do? What's it going to be? Are we living that way? That's what we want to do. Like Justin said, this is not a program that we're going to, we're going to put in. We want this to be the culture of our church, of our community here. That we're all like that group of kids. We're all just leaning in daily, weekly. We're looking. God, what you gonna do? Where are you gonna act? What's gonna happen? I've got time. I've got money. I've got, I've got stuff laid out for you to act. I'm waiting expectantly, leaning in. There's margin in my life because I believe that you're alive and I believe that you're on mission and I want to be exhausted for that.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you know how much I've, I've wrestled through these things. You know the time that's been spent praying these things over my own life in the areas where I know the Spirit's got to work and i got to change and I ask for your help to do that. I pray, God, that you would so work in this community, this Baraka community, this community of faith, that we would live lives with margin. We are expecting and believing and hoping and looking for you to act and to move. Please, God, would you do that for us? Would you leverage our lives, exhaust them for the sake of your glory, for, for the making of, the, of disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples? It would be to our huge benefit. And we know it will be to your glory. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is living, reigning, and coming again. Amen.